Hello and thanks for streaming this episode from ACF Church. Our hope is that this word would encourage you to walk closer with God and with your local church. We hope you consider partnering in the work God's doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you'd like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so safely on our website at acfak.org or by texting the amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. What's your name? Carl. Let me guess, Carl. Someone talked you into coming here today, didn't they? Yes. Yes! And you're not sure about this, are you? No. No man, no man, no man, no man! You're dead, Carl. You say no to life, and therefore you're not living. You make up excuses to the people around you and to yourself. You're stuck in the same dead-end job you have been for years. You don't have a girlfriend. You don't have anything close to a girlfriend. And you lost the love of your life because she couldn't be with someone who didn't live theirs. We're gonna make a covenant, Carl. Do you want to make a covenant? word is yes, Carl. Yes! 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 Once you leave this building, every time an opportunity presents itself, no matter what it is, you will say yes. Yes! 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 What if I say the other word. You'll be making a promise to yourself. And when you break a promise to yourself, things can get a little dicey. What do you say, Carl? Are you ready to make a covenant? Yes. Yes! 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 yes. Again. Yes. yes! Say it again! Yes! yes. Ah! Make me believe it! Yes! 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 Yeah! Are you grateful for being at church today? Yes! There it is! Ah, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, glad to see you guys. Grateful uh, that you take time uh, to spend with us in community here uh, today. And uh, I set a, a challenge last week for all of us just to make, um, I guess, <laughs> make a covenant for your new year, uh, to make a plan for, for your new year that uh, you would be part of community on a consistent basis. Uh, it's easy to kind of let church be um, that thing that you do when nothing else is going on. Um, but I just challenge you to, to make a commitment for the six weeks of this series to be at church, to be in community, and just to see if God might bless that. Because I really believe that uh, this time together is important. And uh, I'll tell you, I miss, I miss you when you're not here. I miss uh, many of you that I know personally. And uh, we need the whole body together, and we need to go somewhere together. So thanks for making time. I know there's a lot of things you could be doing. Uh, but you set some time apart on Sunday morning to be here uh, and, and to, to just to believe that God's going to speak to you as we gather together. And I think he will. So we are in a series called The Grind. We are spending six weeks talking about the grind of life. 
And uh, it's really a timely conversation as we are in January in Alaska, and this does feel like a grind, doesn't it? I mean, this time of year is really when life sort of slows down a little bit. Uh, it's the post-holiday letdown. You put away the, the Christmas lights in the tree. Um, maybe you didn't. Maybe the person leaves them up all year long. I don't know. But we did, and our house was totally empty. And uh, there's just there's sort of this grind that happens in January, February, March, uh, where we just kind of struggle in many ways. In, in Alaska, it's, uh, it's an isolating season. Um, I remember the first year that I got here finding out that um, between January and April, that's when depression really skyrockets in Alaska. I don't know if you know this. Uh, I, I was assuming that the darkest day of the year would be the most depressing day of the year for Alaskas. It tur- Alaskans. It turns out that it's not. It turns out coming into spring is actually when people struggle the most um, with depression and uh, just with life in general. And so uh, this is just a great season to be together to talk about um, how do we get through the grind and, and how do we do more than just getting through it, but how do we actually find life and joy in, in the little things of life, in the grind of life, going to work, you know, driving to work, taking care of the kids, going to school, just the things that are in our lives. And so last week we started off by, by talking about the compartments of our lives and how we tend to put Jesus in a compartment. Um, and I made this statement that a God that fits in a compartment isn't a God at all. It's fake. It's fake. God, God was never intended to fit in a compartment. And if you think that you can, if you think that we can isolate God to this area of my life or that portion of my life, really God is not God. We are God in that situation. We've not made him Lord of our lives. And so we, we started off this whole year by getting on our knees together. And uh, many of you did that. And uh, we just prayed and we, we, we set a posture of humility to start off our new year, which is a great place to be, isn't it? A great, a great posture for wanting to see change in your life is on your knees in a place of humility, humbling ourselves before God. And we're going to keep coming back to this passage in, in Psalm 24. I want to just read this again. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And so the whole conversation this whole series, it, it begins with this realization that everything is God's. I, I am his. The world is his. My, my job is his. My work is his. And how do we give purpose to those things? And so I just show that clip from Yes Man, if you haven't seen that movie in a while. Classic Jim Carrey. Uh, just super funny. So the, the story goes something like this. Here's a guy who's wasting away his life. And as they said, he says no to all kinds of opportunities. He's, he's a no man. And uh, many of us live that way. We just, uh, we want to do what's most comfortable or what's safest, uh, what seems safest. And so we say no to a lot of things. And he goes to this crazy conference and uh, he makes this commitment, this covenant, Carl, uh, to say yes to everything that comes before him. And then the rest of the movie is watching this man uh, struggle through life as he says yes to all kinds of things that he should be saying no to. And he, he, he has this idea, well, maybe if I just say yes to more things, life's going to be smoother or I'll have a more fulfilling and purposeful life. And, and it turns out that's really not the case. And I think we know that to be true, don't we? Like as, as you look at your life, you have stories of things that you should have said no to, which set you on a course of all kinds of wreckage and damage in your life. And you can actually pinpoint certain decisions that you made in your life as, as really like watershed moments, these moments that changed the trajectory of your life. I, I, I should have said no to that. I didn't, and everything changed. You can also probably see things that you should have said yes to, and, and you know like, hey, had I said yes to this thing, it would have changed everything. 
We see missed opportunities. So clearly the answer to, to moving forward in life, to knowing what we should do, what we shouldn't do, doesn't come down to just saying yes to everything or no to everything. We actually have to find a way to determine what is good and what is not good. And I believe that once we know these things, we will actually be able to find some purpose in the grind of life. We'll be able to actually like, know what we should be a part of, what we shouldn't be a part of, and, and know where we're going. And, and we'll be less of a victim to our circumstances, like many of us feel so often. I kind of feel like it's like this. When you wander through life saying yes and no to whatever pleases you in the moment, it's kind of like wandering around in a drunken stupor, isn't it? Now, here's what I know about you guys. You're a bunch of church people, and you've never been drunk, right? So um, you won't understand this illustration, but uh, from what I hear, <laughs> awkward laughs. I love it. Somebody's elbowing somebody at church today. So get the man some coffee. Um, that's how we roll. So... What it's kind of like is, from what I hear, is uh, wandering around in a drunken stupor is, is, is to be controlled by a substance. And, and I, I think of drunkenness, I think of blurry vision, I think of aimlessness, um, I think of a little bit of nausea, I think of bad decisions, right? No good decisions are made when somebody is drunk. Um, the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about that we shouldn't be drunk on wine, we should be consumed and filled by the Holy Spirit. And uh, the reason he says that is because something is consuming you. Something is driving you, whether you know this or not. You will be consumed by something. And it's either your decisions or, you know, your circumstances, or it will be the Spirit of God. And as the people of God, we say, I want it to be the Spirit of God. Because when we're consumed by the Spirit, if we were drunk on the Holy Spirit, it would mean that we were actually driven by the Spirit. It would mean that all of our decisions, all of our yeses, and all of our noes would be driven by being consumed by the Spirit. But that's not how most people live. Most people sort of make yeses and noes dependent upon how they feel in the moment or, or what maybe is seen as a, as a smart decision or a, a fiscally responsible decision. And so we just, we look at our lives and we're like, how do we make yeses and how do we no say no? How do we determine what is an opportunity and what is a temptation, Right? Because it's hard to tell sometimes. This is trickier than it seems to know what to say no to versus what to say yes to. And as I think in my life of things that I've said yes to that I shouldn't have, um, I think what drives me a lot of times is something called FOMO. You guys know what FOMO is? Anybody? Fear of missing out. Yeah, ask your teenage daughter. She'll know. Fear of missing out. Uh, FOMO. I think of my life. I think I don't want to miss out on anything. I really want to enjoy my life, don't you? Don't you want to enjoy your life and enjoy people? And, but then there's these moments that you get where, where it hurts. That you've missed out on something, where you see it on Instagram. You know, all your friends went skiing and you did not get a phone call. Or you're at work on Monday and people are talking about what happened over the weekend and you're like, I had a great weekend sitting on my couch because none of you jerks called me, right? Or, or, or maybe you think of somebody who has the bigger house than you. Um, you know, or somebody who has the kids that you want or whatever it may be. And you think, I don't want to, I, I, want, I want that. I don't want what I have. I don't want to miss out. And so we make decisions based on, you know, our, our vision for, for life and, and what we have in our brains of like, this is the life that I'm, that I'm supposed to live. And then other people in the room, I would say, struggle on the opposite side. You say no to all kinds of things. Like for you, a good life is like a B minus life. 
Like, I'm totally down with that. If I'm just sort of a B minus at life, I keep my job. I'm not the best, but I'm not getting fired, right? I got kids that are a little crazy, you know, but at least they're, you know, they're, they're coming home at night and, you know, they, they talk to me. At least they, they trust me a little bit, you know. I'm married and it's not the best marriage, but it's not the worst either. I'm kind of a, kind of a B minus person. And so you walk through life making sort of okay decisions, but not great decisions. And if you have a pen, I want you to write this down, that, that good is the enemy of best. I really believe this, that we, we oftentimes choose good things over the best things. Because the best things often mean that we're going to have to risk a little bit. It means that it's going to probably cost you something to choose the best things. And so oftentimes we choose decent things, good things. God might be calling you to pursue some kind of dream, or he might have put a gift inside of you. And so you explore it a little bit, but you don't actually go all in for the things that maybe God is calling you to. Good is the enemy of best. And, and, and something that's been on my heart lately is that I think that there's more to life than, than just being good at things or choosing decent things, but actually choosing the best things. And I, I feel like um, God just in my life has been showing me how short life is and just bringing it to mind that uh, every moment really does matter. A few months ago, my wife and I started a life group at our house. Anybody in a life group at ACF Church or been in in life groups? Okay, so a bunch of you guys in this room. So life groups are really a place that we do life together. It's a place where we have community together, where we can pray for people. They can pray for us. They can know us personally. And as our church gets big like this and and more people show up, it's kind of how we make a big church small is you get in somebody's home. And so if you don't have a life group, I'd encourage you to get in one. We've always had life groups at our home. We always have felt like if God's going to give us a house, let's just fill it with people. Let's use it as much as we can. And so we've always had life groups, normally people who are our peers, like maybe about the same life stage as we're in, uh, same age group. But I really felt convicted a few months ago that, that this was a season of life that we needed to be investing in uh, the next generation below us, the people who are coming up um, underneath us. And I just, I've been really aware lately that I stand on a lot of people's shoulders. Do you think about this much? Like, like we're so busy looking towards the future, looking towards what's coming, dealing with the present, that we forget to look back and think of all the people that have blessed us, the people who have poured into us, have invested in us, and spent time with us. You know, that friend, that older married couple that has helped you as a young couple, you know, deal with different things that mentor in your job that showed you how to do everything that you do. And so I'm like, man, I feel like at this stage of life, I should probably be doing that for other people a lot. And and so we started this group of young married somethings, like a young early in your 20s life group. And so our first week, um, clearly there was a need for this. We had, I don't know, like 30 people show up at our house and I was like directing parking out in our our driveway and people were parked up and down the street. And uh, they hung out at our house till uh, it was like midnight when they finally wandered out. And my wife and I are like drooling on the couch. We've got our slippers on. We already brushed our teeth. We're like, just, you know, it's time for bed. And, uh, And they left. And I just looked at my wife and I was like, babe, we are old. We're old. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, did you see the people that just left our house? And she's like, yes. And I'm like, we are old. And she's like, we look just like them. And I'm like, no, we don't. We just don't. We are much older than them. And even just the the topic of conversation, I I love our life group, but I I know that we are in a different season of life than them. They don't, most of them don't have kids and they're just, they're, they're in a different life stage and they're dealing with different things in their vocations and in their marriages and 
And sometimes it's easy to live like that's not the case, but we are getting older. And most of you, when you look at yourself in the mirror, would probably say, I can't believe how old I am. And a friend of mine told me at one point, he said, you know, to tell like how fast life is going, just compare your age to miles per hour. And I thought, well, that's a good way of doing it. So I'm the ripe old age of 34. And that means my life is going about 34 miles an hour. I think that seems about right. I'm not in my teens, because when you're in your teens or your single digits, it feels like life takes forever, doesn't it? Like I cannot get to the next place fast enough. Some of you are in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and you're just trying to, you know, hit the emergency brake, right? I want to slow down a little bit. Life is going way too fast. And uh, in fact, today is my oldest uh, child's 10th birthday. So I have a daughter who is a, who's a double-digit kid now. And I just, it just blows my mind thinking she sees me as her parent like I see my parents. Isn't that weird? Like she's going she's gonna to tell stories of her parents and it's going to be about us. That's so weird to think about that. I mean, it's just bizarre. And I feel like just in a lot of different ways lately, God has shown me like life is life's going fast, isn't it? It's going really fast. Um, just sharing a little bit deeper of things that are going on in our world. Um, we were gone for most of the month of December, uh, some of you noticed, and uh, most of you probably just kept going to church and things were cruising here, which thank you so much for just continuing here, but um, we took a trip back home to Wyoming to spend some time with my wife's dad, so he came down with a stage four cancer diagnosis, uh, bone cancer, metastasized through his body, um, and this was a shocker for our family. Uh, he had kidney cancer uh, a while back and had, had fought it, and they said, you're clear and clean, just keep moving on. And so we're living life like he's great. And then one day we get this phone call, and, and uh, if, you're, if you're a spouse and you've ever watched your spouse get a phone call that's, a, that's terrible news, um, it's heartbreaking. You, just, you watch her face turn to tears, and I'm like, what is going on? What's the news? What's happening? And so she gets off the phone and tells me, that he's got a big tumor wrapped around his spine, um, that he's got tumors throughout his body, and, uh, and it's, it's bad. It's bad news. And so we were like, well, let's just go back home. And so we made the decision to fly back to Wyoming. I'm feeling as a, you know, like a son-in-law, well, I don't know what I can do about this whole thing, but I knew I could bring grandkids, right? And if you're a grandparent, you know like the power of grandchildren. It's therapy for grandma and grandpa. And so we brought the grandkids, and I just, I watched this week go by, and, and it, was, it was one of the longest weeks that I've experienced in a long time. Um, not because necessarily anything went wrong, but because it seemed like life almost slowed down. You know when something like that happens and everything goes into slow motion? And I just, I watched, I watched this whole week go by. I watched when, when Cliff would hug someone, he would hug them for just a little bit longer. And I watched my father-in-law laugh with my wife. And when they would laugh, they would laugh a little bit louder. And I just watched everything kind of slow down for this week. And, and I was talking with my father-in-law about some things that he's dealing with and, and some financial things that he's kind of planning for. And, and I heard him say something to the effect of, you know what, this stuff just doesn't matter to me right now. You guys, if you've ever been through something like this, you know that feeling where like your whole value system is flipped upside down and all of a sudden things that consumed your mind yesterday are just a waste of time. They, they don't even matter to you anymore because of the circumstances you find yourself in. You see, we are all living terminal. We know this. We know that life at some point is coming to an end, but there are some people in the room and some people in this world 
who are not living in denial as much as the rest of us are. And I'd like to say that I live like every moment matters, but if I'm honest, if I look at what consumes my prayers and what consumes my thoughts, most of those things are not things that are gonna matter in the end. And so they show me that I am not living a life focused on what's to come as I am mostly focused on what's right in front of my face. And if you wanna grab your Bible, I wanna take us to a passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is a, this is a, past, a passage that, that really is, is gonna focus us in on what really matters. And this guy Paul is writing this passage to the church in Corinth who he loves uh, and this church is in a lot of turmoil for a lot of different reasons. People from a ton of different backgrounds coming together, trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And there was this false teaching that was going through the church that there would be no resurrection for those who were in Christ. That essentially we were living for the here and for the now. And so Paul is, 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 is dealing with this false teaching right in the face. And he starts off this, this chapter by explaining what resurrection is all about by starting out with an understanding of who Christ is and that he came and he died and he was actually resurrected. And even that was sort of up for debate even in this early church. And the cool thing was, he was able to actually say, you know what, guys? You don't have to take my word for it. You know, talk to, talk to Cephas over there. He saw Jesus. In fact, over 500 people saw him post-resurrection. And so there were like eyewitnesses in the crowd so, so if people didn't really know if they believed that Jesus was alive, they could go talk to these people and they could actually get an eyewitness account that Jesus was alive. This is a really big deal that resurrection isn't just about, you know, it, there's, there's facts involved in resurrection. And so he's bringing them back to the facts So Jesus is alive and then he wants them to see what it means that Jesus was resurrected, how that affects our lives. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, so Paul tells these people, these, this early church who was going to be persecuted for their faith, who knew that following Jesus was not going to be easy. It was actually going to get harder before it got easier. And I could tell you guys the same thing. Church of ACF today it will get harder to follow Jesus than it will get easier. Like as your life goes on, it will get more and more difficult, culturally, politically, to call yourself a Christian. And he's looking at the, the similar church saying, it's gonna get hard, it's difficult. And he says, if in Christ we have hope only here, if, if Christ only makes me feel better about my current circumstances, if he's only here to meet my needs, if Christ is only here just to deal with the daily grind, then we are of most people to be pitied. He's telling these people like, you're gonna give up everything for this. You're gonna give up your whole life. You're gonna dedicate everything to this. Because like we talked last year, that's the, or last week, that's the only option. There, there's no putting him in a compartment. There's no inviting Jesus into like a portion of your life. It's either everything or nothing. That's what he calls us to. He's like, you guys are gonna give up everything. And I was reading this and I was so convicted with this question. Am I living a, the kind of life that if in the end, it, none of this Jesus stuff was true, I would be the most pitied man on earth. Am I living that kind of life where if Jesus wasn't true, I would be most pitied out of all people on earth? Anybody, think of somebody who should be pitied right now. But I should be pitied more than them because of what I believe. But then he says, good news, it's true. Good news, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead 
And he calls them the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, this idea of first fruits would have been familiar to these people from the sacrificial system. Like, you know, they would understand this idea that you're first and you're best. Whatever it is, if you're a farmer, you bring the first and your best to God as a sacrifice to him. And it's, it's really you saying, I believe in the promise that everything comes from God and that ultimately everything that I need will come to me. Everything that I need in this earth and in eternity, God will give me. And anything else, I don't need it. And so he, he, he talks about Jesus that way, that the resurrection is like the first fruits of things to come, like a foretaste, just a, just a taste of what would come. And he's like, Jesus is the first fruits, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, literally those who, who have died in Christ. He's just a taste of what's to come for us. Here's how this fits in with, with our decisions. Resurrection is what drives all of our decisions. If you're wondering today, like, Brian, how do I know how to move forward? How do I know what to say yes to, what to say no to? I want you to think about resurrection. This is what Paul's trying to do to this church is, is first of all, he's making the assumption that they will give their lives for Christ, that they would do anything for Christ. Now, some, I'm sure, wouldn't, but he's saying this is what it means. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to give your life for him. You're going to give up everything for him. He continues on and uh, skip ahead to verse 29. He says, otherwise... What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? So he brings up baptism. And what we know about baptism is baptism is a symbol of resurrection. When you go under the water, it's a symbol of your death with Christ. When you come out of the water, it's a symbol of your life with Christ. It's why as a church, we celebrate baptism. In fact, for the next two weeks, we are offering a chance for any of you, any of you who have never been baptized to get baptized to make that decision, to not put it off, to not wait until tomorrow because there's no guarantee of tomorrow, and to say, I'm gonna go public with my faith. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that, stick a stake in the ground and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be willing to get in front of people and say, I'm gonna follow Jesus. And so you can actually sign up for that. But we celebrate baptism as a symbol of resurrection. He's like, why would you get baptized if you don't believe in the life that is to come? Baptism is a symbol that what is here is temporary and what is coming is actually what's going to be eternal. And he, he makes this interesting statement. He says, he says, why are people being baptized on behalf of the dead? This passage has been really misunderstood. Um, many of you have maybe encountered people who've been baptized on behalf of somebody else who feel like, well, if I'm baptized, then maybe I can get baptized for my grandfather who didn't know Jesus or my grandmother or for somebody who's passed away. But, but the reality is like this doesn't even fit with Paul's understanding of baptism. And as you study this passage, there's really no historical evidence that this was happening in, in Paul's day. Like he wasn't confronting people being baptized for the dead because here's one thing you can know is that you can't get baptized for the dead. He's making this whole argument that what you do today matters. And that you can't decide in eternity to do what you need to do now. You will not get another chance, not another like bite at the apple. Like this is your opportunity right now. And so instead of on behalf, um, some scholars would, would, would redefine that more as like because of the dead. There are people getting baptized because of the dead. Because many people who they were thinking of that were dead were martyred for their faith. They were killed for what they believed. And those who were martyred were actually huge influencers in the early church. It's a really big deal. Clearly, if somebody gives their life for their faith, you stand up and you listen. You're like, what does this person believe? Why would they give up everything for their faith? So that's what Paul's saying is like, why would you get baptized on behalf of those who've been dead because of those who have been dead if resurrection is not coming, if there's not a life to come? 
He's bringing up a great, a great argument there. And as I think about this, I think, what would I give my life for? Am I that kind of person? Am I like Paul, that I would dedicate everything that I am to the spreading of the gospel? Or do I kind of pay lip service to my Christianity? Are you the kind of person that invests in your faith, sort of like a bad investment that you know might fail? Like maybe that brother-in-law that came to you and was like, hey man, I want to start a business. I'm starting a Kickstarter campaign. And you're like, ah, I'll support you. And you give him like 20 bucks, right? Expecting never to see that $20 again. And you're like, and he's like, hey, did you invest? Did you invest in my company? Sure did, buddy. Love you. Praying for you. Succeed. Um, in your mind, you're like, I'm never going to see that money again, and that's okay. It's 20 bucks. Not a big deal. I think a lot of people would say that their faith in Jesus is sort of like that. Like, you know what? I didn't give that much, and so if none of it's true, I'm out 20 bucks, right? I'm out like eh, a Sunday morning a week. You know, really, like, did that really take away from my life? Not a big deal. Not, not, a, not a huge thing. No, Paul is like, no, 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 no. That's not faith. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. It means to give up everything. It means to live a life like Paul was modeling, which was the kind of life that would ultimately lead him to prison for what he, what he believed. What would you give up your life for? What, what matters to you so much that you would risk your life for it? Because really, like, what motivates you, the things that really motivate you, they, they identify what matters to you, don't they? The things that motivate you matter to you. If you're motivated by money, like a lot of times it's going to show the root that that's what drives me. If you think the one thing that could get me to accomplish this thing would be enough money, you have to consider that. Okay, that's what drives me. Maybe it's affection. Maybe you're driven by affection to feel loved. And so you will do anything. I mean, you will even, you will even give up your body to feel love in situations that you shouldn't where you should say no to this, but you know what drives you is feeling loved. And so you make these decisions that you regret and it identifies a drive within you. Paul is like, I don't know what drives you, but what drives me is this life to come. It's not what's here right now because what's here right now, if, the Bible calls what's here right now a vapor. Life is like a vapor, like poof, it's gone. There's your life and then there's eternity. And he's saying, don't live for the poof. Live for what's coming. Live for the life that is to come. Verse 30 says, why are we in danger every hour? Paul knew this. Like, we're in danger for our faith. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, my, my love for you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Paul is showing them, this is what it means to follow Jesus. I, I give up everything. I risk everything to follow him. Paul is showing them what it means to live a life that is not wasted, a life that is lived for what's to come. I, I read a, a recent study this week that, that said that Christianity is the most persecuted religion worldwide. Did you know that? Uh, that that's, that that's if that's true, that is wild. Think about that. And then my, my next reaction was, do I feel that? I mean, I don't know about you. I feel pretty good about being at church today. Like, when I came in the doors today, I wasn't thinking I was putting my life in my hands by coming here. Anybody else? Like, I was just like, I'm going to church today. I don't think about it. And when I talk to people about Jesus, I don't think like, okay, this could be it. This could be it. Somebody could find out that my family and I, we're believers in Jesus, and this could be the end. I don't think like that. In fact, like, what motivates me and what keeps me from doing what God wants me to do is much, much less. 
Like we were coming up on Christmas Eve and so I had some friends I wanted to invite to Christmas Eve service, you know? And uh, I was trying to pull a pastor card, like, hey, I'm preaching, come support me, you know? Uh, I know you don't go to church, but, you know, it's a, it's, it's a great way to celebrate the holiday season. And so, you know, it's a time that a lot of people want to go to church. So I invited some friends and went to one friend in, in particular and invited him to church. And, like, without missing a beat, he's like, nope. And I'm like, okay. And it got really awkward. And I walked away. And I was like, why did I do that? Oh, so embarrassing. Ah, oh, you know, it's going to be like six months before I can get the guts up to do that again. Like, how weak is my faith, right? How, how weak is my faith? If I'm, if I'm like motivated or not motivated by like a little bit of embarrassment, by something like that, I mean, what is it in your life that you're, I mean, if you were to bring up your faith at work, you know, in, in, a, in a way that's, that's appropriate and that, you know, that would actually help somebody, that you would, you would not do that because it would be embarrassing or you don't want to be that guy or that girl. It'd be awkward. Your friends at school, what is it? I mean, what motivates you and drives you? Is it embarrassment? And if embarrassment is what keeps you from doing what God is calling you to do, I guess we've found what's most important to us. I guess we've identified our values Paul's like, that's a bad thing to, to, to stake your life on. Like your reputation, embarrassment thing. Like he's, he's like, I want you to focus on resurrection. I want you to focus on the life that is to come. Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? So we don't know if Paul was actually fighting lions at Ephesus. I don't know. But he was dealing with hard things and hard situations and difficult people. He's like, what do I gain if I did all that and none of this is true? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You guys have heard that statement before, maybe. You know, eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die. Right? Just do whatever feels good, wander around in your drunken stupor, because ultimately it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want to do. Eat as much food as you want, you know. I mean, do whatever feels good, because tomorrow you die. There really is no, like, middle ground here. What we want to do is like pursue a little bit of Jesus and eat, drink, and be merry, right? I want both. I want both. And he's saying you can't have both. Either you believe that there's a life to come or you do not. And if there is a life to come, it changes everything about how you live today. Do not be deceived. He says bad company ruins good morals. Essentially, he's saying get around people who believe that there is a life to come. Be part of the church. Make it a priority. Make it valuable to you. If you want to actually focus your life on something like this, you're going to need to get around people who believe what you believe. Verse 34, he says, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame, he says. Wake up from your drunken stupor, and he says, Don't go on sinning. Now, you might be like, well, Brian, I'm not really sinning. Sin is simply defined as us missing the mark. Sin is simply defined as God says to do something or not to do something, and we do the other thing. We like to define sin as, well, the Bible didn't specifically tell me to take that job. The Bible didn't specifically tell me to not say this or to say that to my wife or my husband. The Bible didn't specifically say, so it's not sin. The opposite of obedience is, is sin. And partial obedience is something we call disobedience. And by choosing things that are good things that aren't the great things that God calls you to, those good things become bad things. Does that make sense? 
Or is that confusing? So like, when we choose to kind of follow Jesus and do something that seems sort of good but not actually totally follow Jesus, that thing becomes disobedience to the actual thing God wants for you. So he's challenging them. I want you to write this down if you've got a pen. Saying yes to whatever pleases us is like living in a drunken stupor. It's like wandering around aimlessly, making decisions based on whatever we feel in the moment. And I think of all those things, blurry vision, aimlessness, lack of focus, lack of purpose, a little bit of nausea, and then regret the next day, right? Like, I should have done something different. So a few things just, I think, to help us move forward. If you're like, well, how do I move forward? How do I say yes to the things that I should say yes to, say no to the things I should say no to? There's a passage in Ecclesiastes I want to close with. I think it really focuses us in. It says this in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Sometimes I like to read passages in a different translation just to kind of draw out some of the language. And I want to read this in the message translation. It's a paraphrase, but I think it helps us to get a picture of this. It says this, But regarding anything beyond this, dear friend, go easy. There's no end to the publishing of books and constant study wears you out, so you're no good for anything else. The last and final word is this. This must be really important if this is the final and last word. Fear God, do what he tells you. And that's it. Eventually, God will bring everything that we do into the open and judge it according to its hidden intent, whether good or evil. So there it is. There right there is every sermon I've ever preached in one line. Fear God and do what he tells you. This is what this man who, who he identifies himself as the teacher says in Ecclesiastes. And, and if you've never read Ecclesiastes, it's a book that just helps you kind of focus your priorities on, on what's coming. And, and again, it, it says that life is really short. It's kind of like a vapor. And this teacher, he's like, hey, I publish a lot of books. I'm doing a lot of things. Maybe they're really good things too. But he's like, you know what? There's never an end to it. It's never going to stop. So write this down. The work will never end, so go easy. Go easy. You can take a break sometimes. If you are weary right now, you can take a break. You can rest. The work will never end. It will be there for you tomorrow. So resting is always a good thing. You don't want to be no good for anything else, as he says, because you're so busy. I mean, even Christians that are focused on the kingdom become like this, where we forget that we are not God. And so you are so dedicated to doing all kinds of things for the kingdom that you forget to care for yourself, to care for your family, to care for your relationship with God. And before you know it, you are good for nothing else. He's like, ah, relax once in a while. Go easy. The next thing is that he says to fear God and do what he tells you. And you might be like, Brian, that is the simplest sermon I've ever hear, heard in my life. But that, it really is. I mean, if you walked away with nothing else except for I need to fear God, revere God, respect God, know who he is and know who I am not. That's to, to fear God. And then to simply do what he tells you to do. That's, that's all you have to do. He says, and that's it. As if that was easy. And that's it. But then he, he says, this is interesting, eventually God will bring everything that we do out into the open. That's kind of scary, right? Everything that you do, 
everything you don't do, every decision will be brought up into the open. Is that good news? And he says, and he would judge it according to its hidden intent, whether good or evil. Essentially what he's saying is like, nobody else sets the bar for your obedience. Nobody else. Just because you're better than the person next to you at at looking holy or doing good things doesn't mean that you're being obedient to God. Just because you're like a little above par, this is the tendency, right? We compare ourselves to the people around us. I'm I'm kind of above par on this area. I'm a decent parent, right? I'm I'm a decent churchgoer. I show up, I serve a little bit, give a little bit of money. Like I'm I'm doing better than 99% of the people. Are you doing what God calls you to? Because that's obedience. He's like, God will bring everything into the open and show you your secret hidden intent. And in the end, like we will know whether our hearts were in this game or not. And I feel this every single week I get up here, you guys. I, I go upstairs and I pray between services and I'm praying about this time that we have together. And I, I never want like in a thousand years, if you and I run into each other in heaven, um, I don't know if we'll know each other or not, but I never want for you to look at me and be like, Brian, you never told me that every moment mattered that much. Like you never told me that, that I could leave church that day and never have another opportunity like I had that one moment. But nothing is guaranteed, you guys. Nothing is guaranteed. We will be judged on our intentions as much as our actions. We'll be judged on our intentions. What drives us, what our focus is, as much as what we do. So just think about you today. Are you lacking focus? Are you lacking purpose? Is life sort of this like bucket list of things to do? You just try to check each one of them off and you hope that by the end of your life, you've done enough things and that's gonna be a good, well-lived life? Or is life more like a bullseye, like this focused in thing where you just, you know what you're about and you're always trying to hit it. You're always trying to hit, like you know that in the end, all that matters is, is this life that's to come. And we get like a taste of this resurrection today. Maybe you're here today and you have put off following Jesus because there's always tomorrow. And you've said it for weeks or months or years, like, you know what, I'm gonna put off following Jesus. Maybe you've put off getting baptized and you've thought, well, there'll always be another church day. It's really uncomfortable. Who wants to get up in front of all those people? Here's the thing. You don't know that you have tomorrow. And I don't want any of you to wait till tomorrow to do what God is calling you to do today. Is it a phone call you need to make? Is it somebody that you know the relationship is strained and it's broken and like you just need to call and apologize for what you own and you have been putting off this phone call way too long? Maybe it's a job change. Maybe it's a a financial thing. Maybe you need to sell your house. Somebody told me between services, God told them to sell their house and to downsize and they're in the middle of selling their house because God told them to. For them, that was enough. So what is it for you today? What is the thing that God is telling you to do so that you might live for the life that's to come? The world will tell you this. The world will tell you that work sucks and then you die. That's what the world's telling you. But Jesus tells us on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection that there is a life to come. And we don't live for what's here today. We live for that life. Because that's the only thing that's gonna matter in the end. Everything else is a waste. I promise you, everything else is a waste. Only what you do for God will matter in the end. Let's pray together.
God, thanks for our time together. Thanks that you've given us a community to be a part of. And you didn't leave us alone to try to figure out how to follow you. You put us next to people to encourage us and challenge us. God, I, I want to just confess in my heart there are things that drive me that have nothing to do with eternity and resurrection. I am fearful of things that ultimately don't matter. Um, I say no to things I should say yes to, and I say yes to things I should definitely say no to. And God, we come today uh, to you to ask that you would wake us up out of our drunken stupor, that we wouldn't be a church of people who stumble around through life trying to check things off of some kind of list, stumbling through life trying to be better than somebody around us, God, that we could lay in bed at night knowing that we are at peace with our creator because we fear you and we obey you. I want to pray for the person here today that's been putting off following you, just making a decision in their heart that today could be their day to make a a heartfelt decision to trust in you. God, we need your help to do that. We need your grace. So I pray you'd empower them. I pray for the person today who's never been baptized or maybe was baptized as a child. It wasn't their choice. They didn't make that decision. And God, they know that you've done something in their heart. And today is the day that they say, I am no longer ashamed of the one who saved me. God, I want to pray for the person who needs to make a phone call, the person who needs to make a change in life that is scared of making that change. God, that you would give them a vision for eternity that you'd wake them up in the morning with a vision for resurrection. God, they would see their lives going towards this life to come. And God, we would be doing everything in our power to bring as many people as we can with us. That's the church we want to be. We submit all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks.